Psalm 19. And for our scripture reading, I want to read a portion of this psalm that hopefully will set our minds and hearts aright as we prepare to look into the, the law of the Lord, the Word of God. Psalm 19, beginning in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that through our study of your word today, the the reality that the psalmist writes about would be true in our hearts. That we would truly love the law of the Lord. That the law, the Word of God would make our hearts glad because it reveals to us more about our our God, our Heavenly Father. God, I pray that Your Spirit would come now and guide our study in Your Word. That we truly would come to see more of You. That our eyes and hearts would be opened to receive the truth that we read and study. And that our lives would be changed Our walk changed. That we would live obediently to your word. We thank you for the presence and power of the Spirit to accomplish this. And we pray that you would work in our hearts by your Spirit. We pray all of this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, go ahead and turn back now to Exodus chapter 22. Exodus 22. I wanted to read that text from the book of Psalms to help us see and understand that what we read and what we call the law and what the psalmist refers to the law, the Word of God, and even what Paul writes in the New Testament that every Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for us. It's helpful for our instruction. Because we come to a text like Exodus 22 and the first part of 23. This is a continuation from the section that was started last week. Back in Exodus 20. And as we saw last week, and we'll see a little bit 
this week, it's, it's difficult at first glance to understand what this section of, of Scripture means for us. What is called the, the Book of the Covenant, or what we've called the Covenant Code. It's kind of this expansion of, of the Ten Commandments, given back in Exodus chapter 20. For the, the people of Israel, this was God's, in a sense, application of, of the Ten Commandments for them. And as Josh so, so well did last week, helping us understand what these, helping us understand first that, that these guidelines, these principles, these, these commands, the case law that, that we saw last week were given to a specific people in a specific context for a specific purpose. And so because of this, we have to work to understand what, what does this mean for us today? What do, what do these laws mean for us today? We no longer live under a theocracy as God's people. So what, is, what does this mean for us? Because the temptation is to read a section like this and, and see it very literally and attempt to make very specific applications to us from each of these verses. Or we are tempted to just see them as some ancient relic that is no longer applicable to us today. This was for Old Testament people at that time and mean nothing for us. I think both of those approaches are, are wrong. I think there's, there's a way to understand these as seeing that they were given for God's people, but also have great application for us today. Generally speaking, this text that we'll look at today from chapter 22, verse 18 to chapter 23, verse 19 is broken up into really two broad areas following very closely with the outline last week. The broad areas are a proper understanding of the worship of God and then our social responsibility to each other, to others. So understanding more properly the worship of God and understanding more properly our relationship to each other in light of that worship to God. And I've broken this section down into five smaller sections. Three of them will have to do with the worship of God. The first, third, and last section deal with the worship of God. And then the second and fourth will deal with our relationships to others around us. In this section, there's also a change from what we saw last week, which was what we, we, we think of as case law. This was God giving, giving examples of things that might happen. If this happens, then do this. If this happens, do that. And there's a change in the way that God is giving these commandments from case law to now more direct commands and instructions. You do this, don't do that. And I think from this text, though we will not make specific application of, of the verses directly to our lives as it is read in the text, but understanding the, the, the broad principles that God is laying before, the, before us, what God is revealing about himself to his people that have import to our lives and the way that we live and worship before him. From this text, we learn how we are to be living 
the law of God, in light of the character of God. And these five things that we'll see are really five applications, if you will, of of how to live in light of the law of God. The first section I want us to look at is Exodus chapter 22, verses 18 through 20. And in this section, we are going to see that the way we live in, in the, the way we live the law of God is by protecting the worship of God, protecting the worship of God. Let's read these three verses, beginning in verse 18. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Now this section here contains three capital offenses that God gives to his people. In other words, these are actions for which the offender receives the death penalty. These behaviors and practices in the eyes of God were incongruent with proper worship of God. Therefore, could not be tolerated. These practices had no place in the lives of God's people. The first thing he, he mentions is the sorceress. Here, given in the feminine, really it's more generally just one who practices sorcery. What was sorcery? Really, we could think of sorcery as, as magic, the dark arts. And before God, what makes sorcery and magic so heinous? is that its very purpose is to manipulate God. It's an un- undermining of God's sovereign rule and authority. Even as Israel saw firsthand in Egypt, the Egyptians sought to manipulate their gods to act on their behalf. They worshipped many gods, and they would pray to a certain god to do a certain thing, and another god to do another thing. And the whole purpose of those sorcerers and magicians was to get their God to do something for them. And it was even a test. Who, which God would be the one to answer the prayers of His people? And whichever God was able to answer in their eyes was the true God. But in God's eyes, and according to His sovereign rule as God of the universe, which He demonstrated earlier in the book of Exodus by defeating the gods of the Egyptians, by proving that those gods, so-called, had no power when when placed in, in battle against the God of the universe, So in God's sovereign rule, there is no room for competition. As if anyone could stand in competition against Yahweh, the true God. The potential usurpers to the throne of God must be seen for who they are and removed. Therefore, God commands His people, the nation of Israel, that that any who practices sorcery as as a way to manipulate God, was to be put to death. The second perversion of the worship of God to be protected against 
was the practice of bestiality. This practice was probably rare in their experience. The reason I believe it's mentioned here is that it was likely part of pagan worship, pagan practices. And certainly a a distortion of God's intended purpose in creation. The relationship between mankind and the animals. But not only was it a distortion of God's intended relationship between or among his creation, but it was also, again, a means to manipulate God. It was, it was that which was incorporated into the worship of, of false gods. And for anyone that would, would practice this, and certainly anyone that would practice this in so-called worship to Yahweh, was to be put to death. And so in very stark language, language we see that God takes very seriously attacks against the true worship of himself among his people. The final offense of these three capital offenses is really just a, a restatement of the first of the Ten Commandments. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone, Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Keep in mind that the nation of Israel was traveling through and would eventually inhabit the lands of, of those that worshipped other gods. And as they encountered these people, as, as they were understanding these people and, and their worship, their practices, the temptation would be to adopt some of what they saw around them. And God wanted his people to understand the danger inherent in adopting the worship of these gods and the practices that went along with it. And even as we see this danger that was present for God's people there, we begin to see the danger that is, that is real for us today. The reason why the, the worship of the true God must be protected in our hearts, individually, in our church, corporately, and in our testimony to the world around us. You see, for the people of God, the nation of Israel, and for us as well, our very eternal safety is at stake in our understanding of, of who God is. You see, for both them and us, our very salvation is bound up in trusting God to save us. It's bound up in, in, a, in a proper understanding of who He is. You see, a wrong understanding of who God is can lead us to wrong conclusions regarding our salvation. It, it leads us to wrong conclusions about who we are as we stand before Him. Who He is and His ability to save us. And for God's people Israel, the temptation was to reject Him as their God. To reject the salvation that He provided for them. And we know, as we know a bit of the end of the story, that for many of them, they fell away. They failed to receive the salvation that God was providing. Because of the rejection of who He was as their Savior. And it is, for, first of all, for our eternal safety that God demands that we do not seek security in other gods or in the worship, other means of worship of God. 
providentially we, we read already, or it was read for us from Acts chapter 4. We read, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The true God of heaven, Yahweh, as he reveals himself in Exodus, through the, the incarnation of, of his son, Jesus Christ, has made the, made the way for our salvation. And there is no other salvation found. There is salvation found in no, no one else. Therefore, the, the worship of the true God, our understanding of him as we come before him, must be protected. It must be governed by the way that he has revealed himself through his word. See, we are not free to define God on our terms. God is who he has revealed himself to be. From this we learn that God does not exist to cater to our every whim. Just as those sorcerers would seek to have God or the gods come and meet their needs, God does not exist simply to come and meet every felt need that we have. As I thought about this, I thought how often we only come to God when we need something. How little do we come to learn of who God is, come to Him to worship Him for who He is. How little we get into this law of the Lord, His Word, and seek to understand who He is. And how quick we are to go to Him only when our, our lives are, are out of our control and, and we, we feel as though we need Him. I mean, in a sense, when we do that, we're we're no different from the magicians who, who go to God seeking to manipulate Him into acting on their behalf. Instead, we, we need to be understanding what the psalmist wrote about, that it, it's pursuing God, a relationship with Him through His Word, receiving from Him that which He has through His Word being changed by the encounter that we have through that word. And yes, going to Him in prayer, making our request to Him, but doing so in, in the context of a broader relationship with Him that is, that is growing and, and, and our wills being submitted to His authority. God wants His people to understand that the true worship of himself must be protected against those that would seek to manipulate God to serve their, their ends. The second way that God reveals to us here, the, the way that we live the law of God, is by embracing the vulnerable and less fortunate. Let's read beginning in verse 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. 
If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn. And I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like the money lender to him. And you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's coat, cloak, and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. And it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear him. For I am compassionate. So God continues this covenant code by teaching his people the necessity of protecting those who are vulnerable. Showing compassion to those who are less fortunate. In his discussion here, regarding those who are vulnerable, he talks about sojourners and widows and orphans. These are people that, from, from a human perspective, really have no clout. They have no power. They have no ability to, to take care of themselves. Sojourners were resident aliens. They were people living in a foreign country. They, they really had no power. Their ability to work, earn money, was dependent on that foreign nation in which they were living. The same was true of the widows and the orphans. Their, their well-being was, was basically dependent on the care that anyone else around them gave to them. They really had no power. I mean, in that day, women... Their identity and their, their welfare was very much wrapped up in, in that of their husband. And if they were a widow without a husband or a child had no father, in that day they, they, were, they were helpless apart from someone coming alongside them and, and helping them. They had no ability to really earn a living. And God wants His people to understand that He is a compassionate God. He says that, verse 27. I am compassionate. Therefore, God's people are also called to be compassionate people. God has always had a heart for the vulnerable. The nation of Israel themselves ought to know that. That's what God reminds them of. Reminds them that they were also previously sojourners in a foreign land. They were also their well-being was dependent upon others and they suffered because of it. And so God ties their treatment and, uh, of sojourners, of widows and orphans, of those that were vulnerable in their midst. God ties their, their treatment of them back to their own experience, reminds them of, of how God had been compassionate to them. Reminded them of how bad it was for them to have no voice. We might think that the nation of Israel of all people would be quick to remember how bad it was, be quick to help those in need around them. But certainly human nature being what it is, it's, it was easy for them to forget. We've already, we already see and have seen how quickly they forgot that the power of God to save them as they came upon difficult situations, they, were, they, they complained. They doubted God's power to save them again. And certainly I think that them, like us, are quick to forget 
how God treats us with compassion and kindness. We might even think this is comparable to someone that grows up in poverty and they end up becoming rich. And when, when someone like that becomes rich and they, they in turn mistreat those who are poor, we, what do we say? We say, you forgot where you came from. You forgot that you were once poor. How dare you now that you have, have wealth and power, how dare you use that to mistreat the poor? You forgot where you came from. We consider that to be a, 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 a heinous act on their part. And that's God's point to his people that, that you were one, at once hopeless. And I came to your aid. God warns his people that when they and if they mistreat those who are vulnerable, he will hear their cries. This is reminiscent of God hearing the cries of the, the, the Israelites in Egypt and coming to their rescue. God is a compassionate God that will come to the aid of those that are vulnerable, those that have no voice. God's promise to the Israelites that if they, would, if they mistreated the sojourners, the widows and the orphans, He would come to them with the sword, a metaphor for warfare. And they would be killed... And he says, your wives will be widows, your children will be fatherless. This is even similar to what God did to Egypt when the Pharaoh commanded that the firstborn of of the Hebrews would be killed. God came and, and returned the favor and killed the firstborn of the Egyptians. And in like fashion here, God is promising to act in his wrath. He says his wrath will burn against those that, that mistreat the vulnerable. Having given those stern warnings about protecting the vulnerable, God shifts to those who are, are less fortunate, those who are poor. These are also vulnerable people. They're people without clout, without power. God defines the poor here as those who just have the basic necessities of life, have no more. And if you loan, He commands them, if you loan money to those who are poor, Don't take his cloak. If you take it, give it back to him by at the end of the day. This is this is what he this is all he has. This is this is all he has to basically keep himself alive for his protection. God is compassionate toward those that are less fortunate, those who don't have the means to take care of themselves. And our responsibility is to, like our Heavenly Father, be compassionate to these people. These people that have no voice and no power. You see, it's all tied into the, in our understanding of the character of God. God wants us to understand that He is compassionate. And even our responsibility is, is heightened by the teaching of Jesus. But we kind of think that, we're tempted to think that these these laws have no application for us. And even as we learned in our study in the Sermon on the Mount, often the application for us is even greater than what we might initially read in, in a text, in an Old Testament text. Jesus often really ramped up what it means for us to obey these commandments. Josh brought up last week the Good Samaritan, a man that 
that acted out of generosity toward, toward someone that he, he had no reason to be kind to, to that man. It wasn't his fault that man was in that condition, but he came alongside. And Jesus' point is that, that we should act in, out of compassion for those who are, are vulnerable. We talked earlier today, next Sunday being Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and, and how applicable it is for us to be involved in these ministries that protect human life. We have a need to be compassionate. Take care to protect, protect those, all those who are created in the image of God. From the unborn who have no voice, to the elderly, and everyone in between. Everyone is made in the image of God. And because of that, must be protected. And we as God's people have a responsibility, an obligation to speak out and be the voice for those who, who have no voice for themselves. This generosity and compassion toward, toward the vulnerable, toward the poor, this will look differently for, for many of us. For those who who might serve at the PRC, we'll probably hear about their ministry next week a little bit, that seek to protect the lives of the unborn. To those who are even burdened for adoption of those that are, are without father, without mother. Those that find themselves living destitute lives without what is necessary to make a living? I mean, I've seen and heard testimonies of people in this body ministering to people like that. I think that's growing and I think this is a great thing. This is a reflection of God's character. This is a way to obey God and reflect the character of God to those around us and to live the law of God, our compassionate God. Thirdly, the third way we live the law of God is by pursuing the worship of God. Look at verse 28. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by the beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. So the first point we looked at, protecting the worship of God. We, we see now here more about the way that we worship God. And here it's God's people worshipped him through the words they speak, through the, the, the obedience that they with which they offer to him that which is his. Again, verse twenty eight being really a, a restatement of the third commandment. 
or an application of it, an extension of it. You shall not revile God or curse a ruler of your people. We live in a day where it's expected and, and understood that we, we will question authority. We'll question those who make claims over us and, and, and command us to do things. But here and, and elsewhere, God commands His people to live in, in submission to Him and obedience to Him. This is the way that we worship Him. God's people were prohibited from cursing the rulers among them, cursing those in authority over them. The New Testament broadens our understanding of this command by requiring us to obey those in authority over us, whether civil authorities or spiritual authorities. We are to be people that submit to those authorities as people that ultimately are submitting to God. We worship God by submitting to these authorities. We worship God by understanding that He is our ultimate authority and has placed other authorities over us. This is an act of worship. We pursue the worship of God by seeking to heed the words of those that speak the the word and the truth of God. When we gather here and and the Word of God is open before us. We worship God by seeking to submit to the things that we read and hear. Again, I think for us, the command is, is even heightened from what we read in this text. The people of Israel were commanded to give their firstborn to God to offer their, the firstborn of their livestock, to offer the, the first fruits of their harvest. And for us, Jesus summed up the law. How did He sum up the law in the New Testament? He summed it up with the command to love the Lord your God with all of your heart. So for us, what is required is more than simple, a simple accounting of, of, a, of a portion of that which God has given us. But it's really a giving up of all that we are and all that we have to God as worship. We offer ourselves sacrificially. Paul spoke of that in Romans 12. We are a living sacrifice to God. Everything that we are and everything that we have is His. For Him to use as He pleases. This is how we pursue the worship of God. By offering ourselves and everything that we have to Him for His use. Consider the example of the widow recognized by Jesus in Mark 12. Let me read this for us. And he, that is Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. 
For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. And in God's eyes, Jesus' point here is that God reckons those who have given the most or those who have sacrificed the most. God calls us to, to give to Him sacrificially. For us, it's not enough just to find the, the minimum amount that we need to give to God and, and be satisfied with that. For us, we need to, we need to strive to give sacrificially. Not to be foolish, but to give sacrificially. We're truly blessed as a church to, to have people that give faithfully, whether it's financially, whether it's giving of your service, of your, the using of your gifts for the church, giving of yourselves to one another. They say, I think we, we're truly blessed with people who, who do give of all of those things. But I wonder what more God would, would be calling us to give. What more is there financially that God would, would call you to give? What, what more is there that God would, would be calling you to, to exercise your gifts in the context of our church? What person or people are there that God is calling you to go serve? That you have yet to, to, to follow Him in obedience? We pursue the worship of God by, by giving to Him sacrificially of ourselves, our lives, and, and all that we have, all that He has given to us. The fourth way that we live the law of God is by demonstrating integrity. Look at chapter 23. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden... You shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to, to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner, you know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. God continues to reveal Himself to His people, to remind them that He is a, a God of, of truthfulness, of faithfulness, a God of integrity. God Himself is the definition of integrity. Therefore, His people ought to be people of integrity. 
this section gives us many examples of, of what it means to be demonstrating integrity. We see here the call to truthfulness. It says don't spread a false report. You don't bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many to pervert justice. God calls His people to truthfulness. You remember from the Ten Commandments, I believe it's number nine, shall not bear false witness. God here expands a little on what that means. I think that's even interesting here that looking in verse three, God commands His people not to be partial to the poor man in His lawsuit. We might be tempted to think, having read what we read earlier and and know the compassionate heart of the God, that that he might view it as okay to to be partial toward the poor man. But even that, God says, is is not tolerable. Instead, God, God calls us to be truthful, to be impartial, to be fair, to be just. Again, this is a a reflection of God's character. God's character as God Himself being the definition of truth. See here even verses five, verses 4 and 5. God gives this example of the people meeting their enemy in need. God calls His people to help them. Help your enemy. Protect your enemy. This is, this is how God's people are called to live. This is, this is not natural. It's not natural for us to stand up and act on behalf of our enemy. But this is how, this is how God is. I think even of, of Jesus himself enduring false accusations against him. And the crowds crying out, accusing him of blasphemy. And Jesus endured those accusations. He chose to remain silent against his accusers. I think the work, the working of the gospel in us, the working of of God by his spirit in us to transform our hearts leads us to to respond in, in similar ways. It frees us from the bondage of of needing to be right. and allows us to, to borrow a phrase from Jesus' teaching, to turn the other cheek when we are wronged. When our enemies wrong us, we treat them with, with love and kindness. There's no room in in God's mind, for His people to to be unjust, to be partial. We are called to demonstrate integrity. And finally, the fifth way that we live the law of God is by remembering the provision of God. Read beginning in verse 10. 
For six years you shall, you shall sow your land and gather it in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And here in this conclusion to this book of the covenant, God is calling his people to remember the provision of God. One of the recurring themes in the book of Exodus is this point God is making to remind his people of what he has done for them. We've seen this over and over and over again in the text. God wants his people to remember. God calls his people to do certain things in order that they might remember. God cares very much that his people remember his provision for them. I think it's important for us to, to understand, even as, even as we've seen all of these commands that, are, that have been given to them, both last week and this week, is Really, all of these assume they're living in the land. And even that is, is a promise of God's faithfulness to fulfill the promise he, he made to them, to bring them into the land. I mean, none, most of these things don't make any sense if the people of Israel are, are just going to be in the desert. Instead, these assume that they will be living in the land. They will have possessions. They will have fields to farm livestock to to take care of and all of this God is God is doing in the context of the land in which he has promised them. So even there these assume that God is going to fulfill his promise. The first set of commands here in this last section are really an expansion on the commandment to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. God commands his people to follow the pattern that he himself followed in the creation account in Genesis 1. Six days of labor and rest on the seventh day. And even here, his purpose is, is twofold, really. It's for the people to be refreshed, but it's also for the poor to be able to eat, the beasts of the field to be able to eat. It was God's means of caring for, for these groups. To work the fields for six years. The seventh year, 
It would be provision for the poor and the, and the beasts of the field. The six days you work, the seventh day is the Sabbath. God has commanded us to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The day set apart for God Himself. I think verse 13 is an interesting verse in, in its context here. It says, Pay attention to all I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. I think really this is kind of bringing us to the conclusion of this section. You remember last week, this is, how this, this is essentially how this section began with, with this call to offer no sacrifices to other gods. Worship God and God alone. Here is God, God is bringing us back around with a reminder to, to have no other gods before Him. He is the God that has provided for His people. He is the God that has been faithful to His people. And so God here establishes these three feasts, these three means of, of remembrance. These were times where they, the people of Israel would come together and worship God and thanksgiving for what He had provided for them. The first is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We already actually saw this instituted back in Exodus 11 through 13. Just as the, the people of Israel were preparing to leave Egypt, God instituted this feast of unleavened bread. This was to be a reminder of how God had freed them from Egyptian bondage. He had brought them out of that land into their own land. And this feast would be a continual reminder of God's faithfulness to His, his promises to them. His faithfulness to rescue them. The second feast is the Feast of Harvest, known elsewhere in Scripture as the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost. It occurred 50 days after the Passover. It would coincide with the initial harvest of grain. It was this was the the, the offering of first fruits. According to verse 16, this is when the the crops began to be harvested. And it was this harvest of the first fruits that would essentially guarantee the the harvest of the full the full harvest to come. That's why Paul refers to Jesus as the first fruits of them that have fallen asleep. In first Corinthians fifteen. In other words, Jesus having been raised from the dead was the guarantee that all those who are in him would also be raised from the dead. We thank God for the promises, the guarantees that He has made to us that He will fulfill His promises. He has given us the first fruits. The third feast is the feast of ingathering. This was done at the end of the agricultural year, at the, the final harvest, after everything had been harvested, as, as additional thanksgiving to God for the provision that He had blessed his people with. I think importantly for us, these feasts and this this worship to God shows the the corporate nature of 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 God's people and the worship to him. 
God, God calls his people to come together to worship him. Yes, we can worship God individually and privately. And we, we must. That is part of our ongoing relationship with God. But God calls his people, maybe even more importantly, to come together to worship him. God wanted his people, the nation of, of Israel, to come together, these three, and he would later institute other times of the year to come together to worship him, to remember his provision. We also have these times. We, we, meet, we come together and meet every week to celebrate the Lord's Day. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, the first fruits of those that have fallen asleep. I'm thankful for Josh's exhortation to, to come together. Whether that's gathering together corporately as a church on Sundays or meeting in our community groups during the week or meeting one-on-one with each other in conversations. Let, let these gatherings, however big or small they might be, be for the purpose of, of worshiping God, of thanking Him for, for what He has done for us. Think of the verse, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. God wants his people to, to come together, to be united together to worship him. This is an act of worship to God. When we come together and, and remind each other of God's provision. When we come together and desiring others to, to pray for us, to pray with us, this is, this is really a, an act of worship to God, recognizing that He is the source of, of the help that we need. We come together to, to rehearse the blessings that God has brought into our lives. This is worship to God for what He has done for us. God loves it when His people come together and corporately praise His name. So we live the law of God by protecting the worship of God against false worship. Embracing those who are vulnerable and less fortunate. Pursue the worship of God by giving of ourselves and our things to Him. By demonstrating integrity, truthfulness, impartiality toward all people. And by regularly remembering the provision of God in our lives. Father, thank you for your word and I thank you for the reminders of, of your character. We have seen how you are the sovereign ruler over all. You are a compassionate God who cares about those who are vulnerable, who are less fortunate. You are a God who, as the one who has rescued us who are vulnerable, now demands that 
we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to you, to love you with all of our heart. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to be truthful and impartial, a God of integrity. God, help us to live lives of integrity. Continue to give us opportunities to remember your faithfulness to us, to remember your, your grace, your kindness, the fulfilling of your promises to us. And even may these reminders of your provision for us motivate our, our ongoing worship, our ongoing trust in you to continue to provide for us. May we be quick to remember all that you have done for us so that we are slow to doubt your faithfulness to us. Pray that your word would accomplish that which you have for it today and for us. Pray that our lives would be changed because of of studying this text together. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.